Hi guys, this is John McGann from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland and I'm here with my co-host Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain. Together we've created the podcast Control the Coronables, which includes some of the top players from around the world. Our objective is very simple. We want to be able to educate, entertain and energize the tennis community during this very difficult period that we're all going through. Hope you enjoy our next podcast. Welcome to episode 24 of Control the Corona Bulls. Today I speak to Sarah Borwell. Sarah is a good friend of mine. Uh, we go back, we play tennis together age six and seven. It's been fascinating watching her career develop um, from being a young, anxious girl who didn't like to compete to someone who then made it into the top 200 WTA in singles and 65 in the world in doubles. Uh, she's gone on to set up her own business, Tennis Smart, and played a big role in placing many, many British tennis players into university in America and also now into the UK. Um, I don't know anybody who has her wealth of knowledge on the US college system. We talk about lots of things throughout the, throughout the show, but you will also learn everything you need to know about US college. It's well worth a listen. Sit back and enjoy the show. Over to Sarah Borwell. Sarah Borwell, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan, for having me. So as is tradition with Control the Coronables, we have a little introduction. So Sarah, a career high of 199 singles, just sneaked into the top 200. British number one in doubles and, and 65 in the world in doubles. But arguably more important than that, has dedicated her life the last 10 years, she'll tell us in a bit, um, to Tennis Smart, which is, which is her online, which is her recruitment to US college for play, British tennis players. And I'm sure she'll give us the figures as we go on, but has, has placed hundreds of, of happy British tennis players into the US college system and made a real difference, um, which is amazing. So, so yeah, so how's things, Sarah? You're, you're in the USA right now, huh? Yeah, I, mean, I live in uh, near Washington, D.C. with the wonderful Donald Trump. So we're in, we're in lockdown right now with everything, a little bit britain are as well so we're just trying to cope with working from home while having two young children so a lot of stresses like i'm sure everyone else is kind of battling with and i think everyone we've spoken to a lot of people obviously the whole kid thing and i think your kids are too too young for online schooling which is very fortunate <laughs> um but we've we all are i say we am in spain but everyone in the uk not to turn this into a political show, has got the craziness of, of Boris Johnson um, to contend with. How does, how does that feel in America, knowing that I guess at any point it, it could change in any direction with old Trump? Huh? Yeah, it's, it's weird where we are, because although we're really close to him, we're in a state which is very, it's just all Democrats, really. And, um, but our governor for Maryland is a Republican, but he's very level and he's, like how politics used to be really where they would kind of do the right thing regardless um so we we're really confident with our governor with not opening places too quickly but just with the biggest worry that i have especially linked with my plays is just the visa and immigration situations because that's what 
Trump kind of controls and that's the part which will affect most Brits when they're coming over to America. Yeah, and what does, what does this period mean for college tennis, do you think? Uh, it's really quite stressful and worrying because right now we, with the revenue that was lost during the spring, so all of college sports got stopped in March. And if you think there was March Madness, the big basketball event, yeah. which generates millions and millions of dollars for many schools. So like for LSU, I think it's $8 million. Yeah. And so when that didn't go ahead, all these schools are losing money. Um, and then the NCAA also gave back every single player that, that year, which financially is a massive burden on all schools, which are already struggling with the money side of things. And then for incoming recruits, it's also difficult because all those seniors who would normally have left have been given that year back. So they're staying which fills those teams up and yep. this is going to kind of continue until 2024. So it's, it's probably the most unnerving I've felt in the last 10, 15 years with helping players yep. because there's going to be fewer teams as they cut the men's and women's tennis. There's more players kind of circling around for at least the next four years. Yep. And then we just don't know kind of with the budget cuts this upcoming year for players, it's going to be a very different landscape to what you and I were used to yeah. with having three tournaments in the fall, traveling a lot in the spring. So it's, it's the next year coming is going to be difficult, but if we can kind of find a way to manage it well, then we'll see college athletics kind of being maintained. But it is, it's pretty daunting really with everything that's going on. Because I would imagine it's almost like everything's coming to a head a little bit because what you have, I know, I mean, even at the academy, we, I've had a couple of players that have mentioned it. Well, I'm not going to be able to play a pro tournament for a few months. So actually, I'm, I may as well go to college type, type attitude. So it's, it's almost like a, a bit of a bottleneck that's happening. And, and, and I suppose just for those that are listening in a, in a Division One college, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Sarah, because sometimes the rules do change, but for, for, male, for male tennis teams, there's four and a half scholarships, and for female, there's, there's eight. Um, now, in terms of the fact that they've got an extra, the people that were supposed to move on have got an extra year of eligibility, has that meant that there's more scholarships for next year because there was already, they'd already committed to giving the new players the scholarships, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes, no, so, yeah, it makes sense, but the, so how they did it for this year, the seniors who lost their year, or for tennis, they lost six weeks in the grand scheme of things, but the seniors who lost their year, what the NCAA have said is, look, for this year, we will, money will be given on top, so, so like UNC um, women's team, they have eight full scholarships, but they were bringing in three freshmen. Right. So everyone was just like, well, how are you going to do that? Who's paying for it? So they actually have 11 players on the team on full scholarships. So wow. that was this year. So that was, it's great if you have a senior who you really kind of want to stick around. Oh, yeah. so gonna be, it's going to be very, very strong this year for schools. Um, but then the following years, 
it's then up to the school to pay for it. So if you, if, if a school was due to have two seniors leaving, but you're, they're actually your top two t players, then you just won't bother recruiting. You'll just have those two seniors stay on. Okay. Or if you have a player who is graduating and they actually don't want to stay, they can transfer out to another university. So you have this, it wasn't, it didn't happen like this in our day where it was a lot harder to transfer where you had to ask release and it have it granted now players can go on the transfer portal which is a bit like an online supermarket for wow. college coaches and they can kind of just look who's looking and then contact them and see if they want to transfer so i think for girls the other day there was about 315 girls on the transfer portal oh which is a bit chaotic um, so that's kind of the the problem right now. So the, and then also some schools who, like East Carolina, that instead of them getting an extra, so they got nine full scholarships, they thankfully had one left over because their school wasn't willing to kind of pay for an extra one. Um, so they just used their extra one. But then East Carolina just cut their tennis programs. So it's just it's difficult really but the decisions that are being made are making life quite difficult for recruits and coaches do you think that you said they they basically missed six weeks do you think that they should have been given a full year of eligibility back because of those six weeks no i no like six weeks you yes if you're a senior like we know what it's like your your final year you're probably doing the best you've ever done. You're excited about conference coming up. You're excited about nationals. Yeah. But it's kind of life. And if this yeah. has a massive knock-on effect for the next four years, which it's going to do, yeah. and it also impacts schools where a lot of the mid-majors just can't function financially, so they're dropping programs. For tennis players, it was six weeks, really. Now, the other some spots like track and field hadn't even got going, so maybe, but I don't know. I, I think I think it's a lot to give out considering yeah. the landscape of everything yeah. financially right now. And we could just talk college, 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 because that's you know obviously as a as an LSU boy and as someone who's very passionate about college as well. But we will get back to that route. You know, I want to kind of drag you away from US College and take you back to Middlesbrough, to tennis world, where, where, it, all, where it all began all of those years ago. Um, so tell us about your, your tennis journey. How did you get started in tennis? You know, where did it all start and how did it all start? Um, I guess I understand why my parents put me into so many sports when I was four because my son is bouncing off the walls with tons of energy and so that's kind of how I began I had bags of energy they couldn't kind of stop me and luckily there was a tennis center which had literally just been opened when I was young and it was tennis world went down and had a really good group of coaches there um, a really good group of juniors and it was just, it was kind of, well, it's still my second home, really. I still go back. All of the members, was, we still kind of go in and out there. It's the, Nigel Garton's still looking after it with Libby Fletcher. And 
in all honesty, if I hadn't have had Tennis World and the social aspect of it rather yeah. than the tennis side, then I probably wouldn't have really continued with my tennis because it was I found um, I found tennis very stressful when I was growing up. Yeah. Tournaments, I got very nervous, and and although we had a really good setup with coaches and players, I enjoyed going down on the weekends. And I didn't really play that much tennis. I actually just like played those card games that we all played and water fights and playing football. Um, so that that's why I have fond memories of tennis world. And then as I grew into my game and my confidence, that's when I actually started enjoying the tennis side of things. So, and then I, of course, I met you when I was about seven. So we had our regional. Yeah, I remember, I remember it well. And I, I remember this, this little girl smacking the ball harder than all the boys. <laughs> I mean, there was a few of them flying a little bit around the tennis centre. Well, and that's you, kind. I think more than that. But you didn't half whack it from a young age. Was that yeah. something you were taught? Um, I think growing up on artificial grass at Tennis World is probably one reason and then and Nigel was just amazing with me because I never was funded I was never talent ID'd I kind of always missed out on that because I just wasn't I wasn't getting the results I guess which were required and Nigel always said from when I was 14 15 he just said just keep being aggressive keep yep. playing your game because it'll it'll start going in and I was just like, well, when, like when? And he goes, probably when you're about 20. And telling that to a 14, 15 year old, you're just like, right, okay. But he was right, like what, my junior year at college, when I hit 20, serves going in, hitting huge forehands, starting to go in, could slice, good volley. But yeah, it was, it was something that I, I rarely, I really made the court all the time, but I, I started overtaking those players who were trying to be consistent and yeah. I guess pushers as we like to call them. But I, I ended up, it, I grew into my game, I guess. Yeah, well, you had an, you had an identity. And I think, I think for people listening, I, I, I sometimes think we have to be careful thinking it'll just always just end up going in because there is some people out there that are just nailing balls over fences for fun. <laughs> but, but what you did have, is is you if I if I think of the Borwell family, they were the life and soul of tennis tournaments, certainly around the northeast. You know, you kind of the whole family lived and breathed tennis, you know, and obviously I wasn't around as much at Tennis World, but certainly if you I ever did go to Tennis World, the whole family was there. If I went to a tournament, your caravan was there and everyone was in the caravan eating eating Barbara Borwell breakfast and get, you know, getting stuck into a bacon buddy. And I think it's, it's such a, for people listening, and I want to get your opinion on this in a minute, here we have a girl who, as you admit, a little bit anxious playing, didn't necessarily love competition at that age, but loved the experience that tennis brought. You know, not just the, the tennis part, but the experience that tennis brought. And because of that, stayed in the game, had a, had a really caring coach who, who was able to kind of have empathy and back the way that you wanted to play. And let's not make any bones about it. You were 199 in the world singles. That is, un, it's unbelievable that, to get the, that level. And then obviously 65 in the world in doubles. You had an incredible tennis playing career. Are we in danger of not allowing a young Sarah Borwell to come through 
in, in I'm not just talking about in the UK, I'm talking about in the world. It, it, it feels, it, it, if I take Soto Tennis Academy, the youngsters, it feels so serious from parents, so young. And, and that's something we're constantly trying to battle. Are we in danger of losing out on, on people like yourself? I think so. And I think that's kind of what's driven me to do what I've been doing and yeah. and growing different things. Just because I know that if I had gone, to, like we, we went down after my GCSEs, we drove down south to look at academies. Yeah. Thinking that's what we should do because that's what everyone was kind of doing. And yeah. we went, I won't say which ones, but we went to a few and were just like, they were kind of soulless. And it wasn't, yeah. it didn't have yeah. the family atmosphere that we had at tennis world and and so for me it would it really would have been a bad fit and i i really wouldn't have lasted so i think we do lose a lot of players just because there's none of these tournaments anymore like ilkley or solihull where you can go with your caravan or your tent and you're there for the entire week so even if you lose first round kids stick around they're practicing they're supporting yeah. and that's literally why I continued I just I used to travel to tournaments with Joe Cunliffe and Lindsay Davidson and I wouldn't speak in the car because I'd be so petrified about competing yeah. and not because my mum and dad put any pressure on me they were the most laid-back people and just said well mm -hmm. if you lose you lose but I was putting it on myself yeah. and it I remember just going to nationals each year and kind of trying to go on court and play my first round and my first serve in the first round i stepped up the line and served my massive serve and i was so tight that the ball didn't bounce and it hit my opponent in the chest and that's kind of that was my junior career yeah. just just anxious about it all but then i started making friends and i started finding groups of people that i had things in common with yeah. and i started feeling like I fit somewhere and that's why I continued and why I now try and make it clear to players that look you don't have to be a top junior you don't have to go to an academy on your own or you don't yeah. have to drop out of school you can you can stay at home at your local club go to a full-time school and just kind of find what's right for you because if I'd kind of if I'd left home and gone somewhere else I think I would have really struggled and if I hadn't found the social side of it I would have as well. The danger and this was something that I again wanted to speak about later when we talk a bit more about Tennis Smart but is there the danger now though it feels like so let's if we take if we take my example and I think we went to college pretty much the same year or in and around within a few months I didn't know about college 10 months before I went it just kind of fell on my lap a little bit Whereas now it feels like the pathway as such, and, and I'm guilty of it as an academy, that's definitely a pathway that we, we put in place. That's almost become a bit serious. And it's like that you have to be this UTR, you have to be that, you have to have this in place. And, and again, and any parents listening from the academy, there's, there's a couple that will probably know who I'm talking about. But it's, it's, it's not been fun for them. They've been so stressed for four or five years because it's such a clear pathway so has that all become a bit serious as well probably as well and it's funny just going back i have quite a vivid memory of 
talking to you outside the courts at Felixstowe and you were like, yeah, I heard from LSU, like, not sure. And I was like, you've got to go, you've got to go. And I remember having that conversation. But I, I think the main thing is, and this is why I keep going on about having just the four pathways, is for me, if you put all of your eggs in one basket, then the stress levels and the anxiety are just going to get bigger and bigger. Yeah. But if you think of the four pathways of British University, American University, ten staying in the tennis industry, because if you're passionate about coaching or running your own club or academy, then that's a really viable option. And then um, going pro. And then it just and then instead of people, I think the biggest problem, I have a lot of conversations with clients. Because initially they all want to go to Division One, and they won't look past any other division because they think Division One's the only place to go. Yeah. And also, it doesn't look good if I go to a Division Two. When in reality, if you can just remove the divisions and just find the right coach for you, who's going to develop you, who's going to treat you well, in a team that you can be a key player, so someone who is looked upon to get results, so that fills you with confidence on a schedule you can win matches, doing a degree which is worthwhile and testing so you feel challenged, then those are the variables that you look at. So then if, if, if that's what you focus on, yeah. then you can kind of remove the UTR part and just find those things which are important to you and you'll stumble across something that's yeah. very, very good. But yeah, if, if you think, okay, Division One, I need to be a 12 UTR, Otherwise, what's the point? Then it, that becomes very stressful then. And then you kind of lose sight of what's important. And then yeah. you really do get a bit anxious. And how did you find US college as a player? I, I was very shy growing up, surprisingly, until I find my, found my group that gave me confidence. And so yeah. my mom literally did everything for me. And it was back in the day without internet. So people would just send media guides through yeah, and Brent Parker, who was one of the amazing coaches at Tennis World, his friend was the best man of someone who had a link with Rice University. It was like that convoluted. And so my mum was just like, well, let's try for Rice. And then we kind of started talking to other coaches. Well, my mum did because I was too nervous to speak to coaches on the phone. And because I hadn't played ITS, which back then were the most important gauge for coaches to understand, I didn't look like a very good prospect. So I think I actually got offered by Drake University and I had to tell the coach, no, um, I don't want to come. And then I, I guess in, in May time, someone said no to Rice because they went to Stanford. And so they took me as kind of a backup. And that's the only way that we made it out there. But... Rice is like Oxford, Cambridge, and I am not that level. So after about two months, I realized I needed to find a place where academically it wasn't so challenging. You started there, of course, yeah. Yeah. And I, but I, I literally knew the, first, the orientation week was the best week ever. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be the best four years of my life. But then classes began and the workload. And it was just okay. incredibly hard for someone. I was like a BC student working mm -hmm. hard at that. So to go in with these incredibly intelligent people and then try and do well in my tennis, for me, it was just 
not a good fit. So then Joanna Cunliffe, who we all know very well and we all grew up with, she was at University of Houston. So I just transferred across to them. And for those, for those listening who don't know US College, just give us a couple of minutes on what, what US College is all about, US College Tennis. Um, you as a player, from your experience as a player. Very busy days, which was so well structured with such a good team around you where you literally just had to show up, work hard, and everything else would kind of fall into place. So you, everyone knew where you were at any given point in the day because you were either at class, on the tennis court, or in the gym. There is some traps of college as well, isn't there? You know, and there, like, I mean, obviously both of us have gone there. Yes, I'm sure we've had our fun and we've had our nights, but I think coming from the UK when we already have probably had that, especially the Northeast of England, we've had a few nights before we've gone to college. And then secondly, because we both had ambitions to play professional tennis, it, we probably knew most of the time where to draw the line, but that is a serious trap that, that players fall into. Do you, do you find that? Um, I think American players do a lot because it yeah. so it's, it's not like the UK where your parents will give you a bit more leeway when you're younger. So, yeah, when we went, we were kind of like, oh, yeah, well, we can party, but it's not like everything to us. Yeah. Um, so I think it does, a lot of Americans get excited when they leave home for the first time and they're, kind of allow to have a bit of a longer leash to do stuff but yeah when you're a, a student athlete you you learn quite quickly that if you're in Louisiana or in Houston and it's 100% humidity and 100 degrees you might have a bit too much to drink one time but if you're practicing the next day you'll not do it again so I think you learn quite quickly that if you're there to be an athlete you know that you're going to find the right time to kind of let off steam if you want to. Um, and that's for the top programs. I know that's why I kind of like division three a lot because you can have a bit more of a well-balanced lifestyle where tennis is important, but not to the point where it's cutthroat and it's do or die on the tennis court. Academics are important, but you can also have a bit of a social life as well. And a coach isn't going to make you kind of sign a contract and say, look it's a spring season you're not allowed to drink or go out so that's again the balance that you've got to find I think the majority of players who don't want to go pro but want to have a want to enjoy the tennis and be part of a team division three actually is probably the better scenario for them but many just keep thinking division one is kind of the golden goose yeah and I think also the coaches are pretty smart I remember in my freshman year, we did, we went out, we went out midweek and all of a sudden we started being in the gym at six o'clock the next morning and we did it once in the gym for six because you didn't miss it. Having a bad head or making that up doesn't wash, you know, when, you, when you've got the accountability of being in a team. And I remember I was doing bench press, which they, which they love, I certainly used to love over there. And I was lifting, I don't know, probably wasn't that heavy, but I'd like to think it was quite heavy. And uh, I lifted it up and the next thing I knew, my right arm had gone up much quicker than my left and weights were flying everywhere. And I had this like whole kind of dramatic moment and never again. And, and I did, I gen generally don't think my last three years 
I didn't go out once during the whole during the season. It was just like that. The, you, you, I bought into it so much, and, and I think that's the that's the exciting bit. And that's give us a little example of that playing for the team and the people watching and the the camaraderie that that people maybe just wouldn't have any idea of when they would think of college tennis. Well, well, I think you could probably give a better idea actually because you played at LSU, which was one of the my, my I wasn't I wasn't on a team which was ranked. I did very well individually, so our team. My my memories of being on the team aren't as good compared to my memories of doing well as an individual. Yeah. But your team was so good at that time. And I, I seem to remember when you'd play like local rivals, didn't they kind of shout things at you and you, you yeah. were ripping your shirt off and everything? I mean, there was all sorts. There was all sorts. I mean, I guess a couple of standouts. We played Texas A&M at Texas A&M. And when we turned up, we were getting egged we were getting all sorts chucked at our, our bus. And there was, I reckon there was two and a half thousand people. The legend grows, was probably 500. But now, yeah. and, uh, there, were, there was definitely more. There was over a thousand. And, and I was playing in the number one doubles. And it was full on packed. And this redneck kind of 70-year-old guy was in the front. There was six all, let's say, in the doubles. And I walked over and he full on spat at me. <laughs> and, I, and I looked at him and he was sat next to like and he was he had his grands, grandson who was like five years old sitting next to him and I went hey great work mate no great you know really you, you can be really proud of yourself something like that and that that was certainly very fiery I remember playing at Illinois and I remember they were chanting at me hey Keenan you've eaten too many fish and chips and um, that was kind of the chant that was coming my way um, it, it didn't work well for them in both occasions. I won, I won those matches. And then probably the biggest one that I was very fortunate enough to have the experience was NCAA semifinals. And that was in Georgia, Athens, Georgia. And anyone who loves their tennis, I'd recommend going to an NCAAs at Athens, Georgia, because it's just, wow, you know, what a place, you know, for me, that's the real kind of home of college tennis. And, we were playing against UCLA in the first semifinals and Georgia were playing Ole Miss in the second semifinals. And genuinely by the end of our match, which was very dramatic ending, there was probably 7,000 people, you know, and it was just the banks, the, the stadium was packed, the energy, the, and, and as it happened in that match, I was still on court. Our team was, we were Three, two, no, we were two all. Tom Hand, who a lot of people know well, he was he was four love up in the third set. Um, and it looked like Tom was going to win. And then um, our Ed Rubin, no, that's right, we were down. We were down, sorry, 3-1. And we needed to win all three. Ed Rubin, um, God bless his soul, Ed passed away last year. But he was, he was three love up in the third set. And, and I was four all in the third set. It looked like it was all coming down to my court. And then all of a sudden, all eyes went to Ed's court and he had full body cramps. Oh, I've seen that a few times in college as well. He couldn't, he couldn't get up. Oh. He, couldn't, he literally, he, he couldn't physically get off the ground. It was, it was so heartbreaking. But I, I guess I experienced that adrenaline of, it was all in the semi-finals, thousands and thousands and thousands of people watching. It was all eyes coming to my court, and then bang, 
and it was you know, he was getting time violations and basically that was it match done um so yeah I mean, i've got a little bit lost in those stories but i, I it really it it's, it's it doesn't feel real now you know but it, it yeah. was real and it was it was amazing and what about um what about other sports because that's also part of the college experience did you did you get to enjoy that at Euston? Did they have... It, it's funny because I think, like, as much as I, Houston helped my career and Jen Hyde was a brilliant coach, it, if I did it again, I would go to a college town where yeah. when you think about college towns, you think, well, well, there's nothing there. It's the middle of nowhere. Why would I want yeah. to go there? And it's because everything is for college and the student athletes and the football game on the weekend or the basketball and I I didn't really have any of that our, okay. our football team at the time were dreadful none of us were actually kind of very good really at anything like we weren't highly ranked like LSU um, so I didn't really get that feeling of what it's like to go to an LSU football game where there's a hundred thousand odd people watching yeah. a successful team. And because it was in a big city, the university got lost because we had so many different pro sports. So I kind of felt that when I lived um, in Iowa City at the University of Iowa and I got to go to the football games and really invest my kind of emotions into the football team and yeah. all the athletics there, I got to see you actually, oh wow, this is what it's like. Right. So if I did again, I would, I would, well, I'd love to go to Alabama. So that, that was the team that I always kind of, I'd love to have just gone there. I used to I train there a bit when I was on the tour and just the facilities and just the setup and the college experience that you're going to get is just out of this world. You can't mention Alabama around me. I know, I'd throw it in, sorry. You're not allowed, to, not allowed to mention that. <laughs> when, so again, if I, I'm trying to drag you back into your life. You're a, an anxious girl, sorry, who, who doesn't want to compete, who then has, has a potentially big game, but hasn't really put it together, you know, now and um, by now. I know that certainly speaking from personal experience, playing mixed doubles with you when you were in college. Poor, I, I genuinely have never played with anyone who give, gave me so many duck volley putaways, you know, and, and so for those listening, Sarah's serve really was out of this world. When did you think that pro was a possibility? Because I would imagine growing up, you never believed you were quite good enough for that. So when did that become a possibility? And then how did that transform? It's funny because I, I actually don't know. Like, I never thought I want to go pro. This is my whole dream. I just kind of, I just enjoyed being around my friends and kind of yeah. just feeling I was actually having confidence and like just with a group that I actually could have fun with. That was, that was literally it. And then my last year in England, I, my game started to kind of, work a little bit better and I started getting some really good results and doing well in the big events um and I remember the LTA were then just saying look why don't you stay here you can train this academy and we'll take you on trips and stuff but luckily I kind of I was already so mentally in America in a way I left um and so I 
even in America, I don't think I ever thought I'm doing this because I want to go pro. I just was doing it because I finally was on a team. It was like county. We, we could have fun. We would travel around America being silly in the cars, in the hotels, playing matches the next day. There was, there was no real pressure on me because I had a group around me. Yeah. But then my freshman year, I did really well and got to kind of 29 in the country for doubles and was, did well for singles. And then each year for my singles, I started getting ranked. Yeah. And Jen Hyde had a chat with me, I don't know, my junior year and just said, look, you could be very, very good, but you, you need to work harder than you are. And I was working hard, but she, she goes, if you want to be one of the best, you got to work harder. And then yeah. from that kind of day on, I started doing extra tra training in the gym and, and kind of, I think that's probably when the light bulb went off going, okay, I could be good at, in college. Yeah. So there was never, I never had the end goal of the two, which probably would have stressed me out anyway, because it's a mm -hmm. difficult goal to have. It was just step by step. I want to be the best in college. I was number eight in the country for singles and 12 for doubles. And then I did my graduated and then Owen Hambrook, who's at UNLV said, come to Las Vegas, you can start your pro career there. Right. And then I was there for about a year and a half. Um, and then met Pete Russell. Yeah. I actually was in the tournament in Cumberland when you, yeah. I think you were, I was watching you and I met Pete there. Yeah. And he, he coached me for the next kind of five years. And that was, yeah. that was how tennis really started to, I could see that my game would transition well into the tour. Yeah. And it ended up doing that. And what were your best experiences as a pro player? Um, Commonwealth Games with Ken Skupski winning yeah. bronze Amazing. in LA. It was incredible because it, it was the most bizarre situation where literally there were so many insects on the court. A guy, yeah. like cockroaches, um, ants, everything on the court. You couldn't even see the court half the time. They were just all over our shirts and everything. And the change of ends, like this small guy would run on the court with a feather duster and just start whacking these cockroaches up. And then... Um, and then I remember my mum and dad were watching it on BBC, like the red button. Yeah. I literally had kind of, at the end of the match, we'd won to get into the final. I'd like moved and a cockroach kind of fell off me out of the bag. And I like screamed and mum and dad heard it on the TV and everything. Yeah. It hadn't been cut. So that was a fantastic experience. And that was kind of the end of my career because I'd had my injury. So that, yeah. that was amazing. And then just just playing at Wimbledon like every year as much as it's a circus for British players and the media yeah. side of things is intense just having your family around being able to watch that is is pretty amazing and you played you played on centre court huh? yeah I played a few times on centre um I think I, yeah I played on I played I think I played Wimbledon like nine or ten times so I've mm. I played on quite a few of the courts there and I played with uh, Colin Fleming on the centre court mixed doubles, which was fun as well. We we signed in, I think, twice for mixed doubles and never got in. And, and actually, I, I, my memory of that, I never played mixed doubles, unfortunately, at Wimbledon. And, and I think my memory of that was that both years it rained and then like they cut the mixed doubles from like a 32 to a 16. 
So so they basically went from like two wild cards, from five wild cards to two or something like that. Um, that's a shame for I think for the northeast, the northeast of England. Well, we're unbeaten. We've never lost, have we? So. Yeah, I don't think we can claim too many big tournaments. I'm not sure the Northumberland <laughs> Open, um, as good as as good as a couple of those opponents were, we can't claim to have a Grand Slam under our belt. That's for sure. Um, and what what else? You played Fed Cup. Yeah, I played Fed Cup um, with Elena Baltach. It was a very happy memory when we uh, we were losing to Belarus. And Nigel Sears was getting a bit anxious on the side, and and we were like a set and four one down. And but Bally was like, let's just pretend we'll have a fist pump in competition. Who can do the best fist pump? So we we're just trying to like relax. Yeah. And yeah. We ended up winning the match, but like I just remember Bally kind of like at one point jumping up and turning in mid air and fist pumping, and kind of and so that's kind of the yeah. last. Mem- really good memory I have of her just like in the air this thing against Belarus what a lovely memory and then and then I always think a, a video that I see or pictures that I see of you playing doubles with Martina Hingis at world world team tennis as well must have been pretty cool yeah it was it was a strange event because you literally you literally play a match late in the evening like you start at seven and it takes three hours and then you eat and then you're off to the next event and you played like 21 matches in three, two and a half, three weeks. Um, but yeah, playing with Martina was really, it, it just, it just showed the golfing level really. She literally did not miss a shot. Like she would set me up, her return every time would go to the right spot. So even though the serve's not hard, it's still going into the right yeah. spot. And she just, she was, she was amazing to play with, and she was literally the most just normal human being you can mm. meet. So that that was fun as well because you got to obviously have dinner with them, drinks with yeah. them. So it was a, that was a fun event. I think she and I, I think I mentioned on, on another podcast, male or female. I think if I could watch one doubles play, it would be her. It's just it's fascinating. Yeah. She she literally puts the ball wherever she wants, like watching the mixed doubles. And obviously I think her and Jamie obviously won it a couple of times. And it was just unbelievable to watch. And to see it with a men are smacking it down against her. And she's just like, Doo. you know. Yeah, she's incredible. And, and the nice thing was, because I could just hit a huge serve in and it was done. Yeah. So she was, was exceptional, but it did show the gulf of kind of what it was to be one of the very best in the world to someone who's kind of 65 and part yeah, yeah. of it. So that was an amazing experience. When was, when was Tennis Smart born in your head? So in, in 2005, well, you know what it was like when you're on the tour, you kind of, you don't win much. And so a lot of the time you're thinking, what am I doing on the tour? Like I'm in the middle of Mexico, I've not won a match for two weeks. I'm spending a fortune. Like, should I be doing something else with my time? And so a lot of the time I would spend kind of thinking, like, should I do an online master's with my time? Because you're spending it either practicing for two hours, competing or just hanging out. And then I started writing articles for different magazines and online stuff. And then I would have a lot of... um, young British juniors just kind of coming to me 
and just saying, look, I've been on the tour for a year. I'm 19 now. It's not what I thought it would be. I'm really struggling. I want to go and do an American university degree and be on a team. But the rules are so strict that a lot of the time, these players back in the day, they didn't have any GCSE. So I'd have to say, look, there's nothing we can do. Like we can't get you in. And I just found that so demoralizing that we were probably losing so many good players because they just weren't aware of the different pathways for them. Yeah. And I, start, I started just helping players for free. And so for about five years while I was still on the tour, I started placing them for free and trying to understand the, all the different rules, getting to know all the different coaches in college. And then in 2010, when I kind of knew, and, and so in 2005, I actually approached the LTA and just said, look, let me build a website for you so that there's something for them to go to and just kind of yeah. have like a CV template or how can I contact coaches? So that's actually still up there. And then as it went along, I realized that I was enjoying helping players and parents more than I was enjoying competing. Yeah. In 2010, that's when I kind of approached the LTA about Tennis Smart and how if we can kind of, I think at that point we had 4,000 players coming through Talent ID every year and only 360 of them were getting a letter saying you have been chosen. So I wanted to say, look, all of 3,000 plus kids who were kind of being told you're not good enough, which I was one of them when I was young, send them a letter and say, you've been chosen for the college tennis pathway. Sarah's going to help you with it. And then we might just keep more playing. Um, so that's kind of how it, how it all worked out. And I, now that I'm working with Barry Fulcher with everything, I'm going back through all my notes and like goals that I had of things which I wanted to accomplish, yeah. which is hard because I've, Tennis Smart's just me, really. Yeah. Uh, but now with Barry, it's nice to know that a lot of the things which I've wanted to do with all the different four pathways and keeping kids in the game, yeah. Uh, you can kind of really start looking at now. Amazing. So what, what are you doing with Barry? Because, I mean, I, I, yourself and Barry are people, obviously good friends of mine, but both of you are amazing people in the world of tennis and in British tennis, and your hearts are absolutely in the right place. So uh, it's so nice to see you guys coming together on this. So what is it that you guys are doing together? Um, well, we first started out with that, the, the Progress Tour and the UTR. We're just kind of figuring out how we can do it and what's going to help. And Barry, I've never, I thought I worked hard, but he literally, and you do, and he never seems to stop. So we first kind of started talking about things like that. And of course, we've got the Tennis Smart Showcase, which is one of the big UTR events, yeah. usually in July. But then I said to him, look, we have, players who are having to do really well on the ACT on SAT exams but it's a bit like sports psychology where it's one of the most important parts of tennis but it's something that we kind of don't really think about and the if you get a very good score on the SAT or the ACT then that can really generate a lot of academic money yeah but private tutors cost a lot of money and the people are already spending a lot so I just initially went to Barry and said, can we do a tennis camp? And we did it at University of Sussex at the training base where you get tutoring, you get really good tennis, like coaching. 
Um, and then you get a UTR event on the Sunday. So a really worthwhile weekend, which is affordable and it's helping you with a lot of different areas. Yeah. Um, and so that went really, really well and the feedback was really positive. So now it's kind of evolved again into, we're gonna try and do this more often, make sure that there's more opportunities for players to have access to different events. Fantastic. I'm gonna, I'm gonna challenge. I'm gonna challenge you on a couple of things in college tennis. Um, just from obviously my ears pretty close to the ground. So just on on a couple of things. Um, is is US college becoming saturated? Um, with with British players. Yes. You you'd think so, but it's actually. It's actually really not, because in the end, you think I probably place about 60 to 80 a year. Yeah. And then the other companies, I would imagine, similar. So there's probably only about 150 players going each year. Yeah. And if, if you think, if you think we had Talent ID where there's 4,000 kids coming through. Yeah. So I think if, we only, if we're only losing 150, and there's about a thousand teams in America. Yeah. And we've had four thousand through Talent ID. One hundred and fifty is not that yeah. many players. Yeah. Um, so that's. I'd love for that number to actually be doubled because it means then that the fifty percent dropout rate actually isn't happening yeah. when they hit fifteen. We're we're losing far fewer players. Yeah. And and then I'd love for more to go down the British University route as well. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, we spoke to Ewan, it, 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 my mind was going to that because obviously Ewan's done a great job the last <coughs> 15, 20 years and it's, it's absolutely becoming a more viable option. But I can't help thinking that it can become an even more viable option if, if there was a bit more invested in that to, to create that as a, as a place where, yeah, I mean, a, a place for people to continue with their tennis. Yeah, that, well, that's the thing, because America isn't for everyone. And I make it clear to all of my clients when I first speak to them that you've got to be going for the right reasons. And you've got to understand that when you go there, the coach is going to be your boss. And it's a very clear line between player and coach. It's yeah. not like the UK where it's a bit more relaxed and you can kind of yeah. have a laugh with your coach. Like it's a, it's a very obvious divide and it's, if you are D1, then it is it is pretty cutthroat. Like you have to win matches and you have to get results for your team. And also in America, it's completely the opposite from the UK, where you get in based on your result, uh, grades for the UK, and then you check out the tennis. In America, they're recruiting you as a tennis player first, and they check out the academics. So you have to really want to go to America and understand that it is a difficult transition. You have to be able to afford it, which is another big thing because you can't use a student loan. Yeah. And sometimes being away from home and yeah. not having kind of the balance with the social life, the academics, the tennis is very difficult for, for many. So if, if British University could be even, they obviously can't ever generate the type of money that they have out here. And obviously we're having a lot of issues out here because the money generated is now actually 
not enough for many schools and we're losing them but it should be it should be a, a highlighted pathway for all British tennis players because if we could just keep people in the sport until 18 get them to university in the UK you've got them coming back into the system in a more positive kind of way basically no absolutely um one that i hear a lot of and, and i guess there's in terms of high profile you know if we talk about it being a kind of legitimate pathway from from being a junior into then pro tennis we've obviously got in the male game you know if we go back to our time you've got you've got the brian brothers you've got james blake you've got then you've got your, your john isners your kevin anderson's you've got you know there's a lot and the, and the data very much backs it up you do hear a lot of people that saying that it's not the same level of pathway and doesn't have the success rate on the on the girls' side. Um, what's your what's your thoughts on that? And I guess not even thoughts. What's the facts on that? Um, yeah, I think as it's gone along, the men's tour is a, a lot harder really to break into because of the physicality of it all. So the average age is probably like twenty seven now in the top 100 yeah. so I think it makes a lot more sense it's very obvious for guys like John Isner who was six foot ten and obviously not ready at 18 to go pro so I think I think it's easier for the very elite young guys to head out there first and then if they're good enough then transition out um, for girls the age range of being top 100 is 24 I think now 25 and there's still that mindset that if I go to university it is a backward step in the in the women's side which isn't right but it's still there now if so like a Heather she she completed her high school education and she looked at the university route yeah and she knew that she had that option if she needed it but instead, she won US Open Junior Grand Slam, which is a clear idea of, okay, I'm ready to transition. I can go straight to the Pro Tour. So I think if, if more did that, where they actually said, okay, am I really that good in the juniors? No, let's go to college for one year. If I do really well in college, one, two years, I can leave and go pro like Irina Falcone. But there's just still there's a mindset that it is a backward step and I'm going to lose time. Now, as the Danielle Collins and Astra Sharmas yeah. through and we get more and more like that, players will start realising actually, no, that's a step that I have to take because I'm not going to break the top 100 for at least four years and that's even if I'm ready, which many of us aren't. Um, and so that's kind of just the route it's going to take. It was the same for the men for a long while, but then you had all these people breaking through and then you had Cameron and now you've got Paul Jobb. And so it's highlighting the men's side a bit more. So I, I think the setups are just as good. It's just that you don't have the top caliber junior female tennis players coming to college first. They all think heading pro is better. Just to stop there, you, cause you've, I don't want to. I don't want to move past the names you've said because I think that's important. Because okay, John Isner is obviously a big one because he, he's ended up being top five, top 
top 10 in the world, Kevin Anderson, Grand Slam champion. But let's name them. Over the last five, 10 years, can you go Danielle Collins, you know, what's Danielle Collins' WTA ranking now? 40? 50? Top yeah. 50. So, so it, which is great. You know, you've got the the Aussie girl from Vanderbilt, Irina Falcone. Um, you've got a lot of doubles players like Raquel Cops Jones, yeah. Abby Spears. So it's kind of like I, th- I think for the sing for the women side of things, you've probably got there's probably about five to ten over the years who have been top hundred in singles, but you're going to get more in the double side like a Lisa Raymond was obviously further back in the day yeah but double side of thing and and that that's why I always just think look if I hadn't have gone to college I wouldn't have made it so I'm basing it all off my experience as a junior which I think the majority of British juniors have the same experience as me where financially my parents couldn't afford to put me on the tour like it's 90 grand a year can't Mm. can't pay that Emotionally, I wasn't ready. Physically, I certainly wasn't ready. My tennis game, I still really didn't understand it. And I was, at, I was at school. So I think I just take it from my point of view that if I hadn't have gone that route, I would never have played Wimbledon, the French Open, US Open, Australian Open. Yeah. And so there's got to be a lot more players like me than there are like a Katie Swan or a Heather, who actually are probably more capable in all of those different areas of being able to yeah. progress through. But these are the stories, and I think I also think there's a danger that the top hundred is is set. It's like if you don't make top hundred, you're not successful, and then it, it's actually so. What then tends to happen? I think we all, as parents, I don't want to tie myself with this brush yet, but I think parents tend to think that their child is the outlier you know whereas actually we all kind of fall into certain it's a certain way of 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 working and if we aren't in 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 our instance in our world the tennis world if we aren't this at 17 18 our chances of being this at 25 are a lot smaller so so then it's actually go to college have and I always think this to myself I was just rubbish enough in 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 you know I was just like just like if I was any better I wouldn't have gone to college yeah because I would have I would have ended up being you know the bright lights of no you have to go pro and and I wasn't ready for that and then I would have had a much different experience as a tennis player and it's like us making sure that we are capturing that. And then, then for myself, I've been 150 in the world doubles and 650 singles. It's pretty good. It was good. It's a success story. I've, I've had, got an amazing, you know, got an amazing degree, had amazing experiences that have then helped me in the next phase of life. And, and, and it's trying to get parents and players to see that as a success story rather than just well, my child is going to be top 10 in the world or top 20 in the world. And actually there's no girls or very few girls that are doing that. So we're going to take the big risk that maybe our child is the outlier here that's going to just randomly go from 400 in the world juniors to being 20 in the world over four years by traveling without a coach to Tunisia for 20 weeks a year. 
in just and it, and this is it, it's how we can educate people on that which i think is is the big one and i think the more the more that we can get these really positive female stories out there the better because i i think the natural i think people have bought into it in the in the male world because of like because there has been these you know this positive light sh shone upon that that is a and i think i saw a stat and i'm sure it was you that shared it with me if if u.s college was a country they'd be number two in the world for producing top 250 atp players in the world now you can't it's just there you can't argue so now people very much see it and so that is, and I will help you with it, but that's our challenge that we can get some of those really positive female stories out there to show that absolutely, you know, this is, this is a route not only to being a professional tennis player, but it's also a route to being happy. <laughs> and well, that's the, that's the thing. Like I, like I, and like you, I was actually more rubbish. So I didn't even have a, my decision was easy and which I'm thankful for because if it, I might not have gone either. So, and then I probably like my whole year group were meant to be one of the very best. And I came back at 22 and they'd all quit. So for me, I'm just trying to get past all of that and just say, look, yes, going pro is a great goal, but we have to have, we have to reach things in stages. And yes, I'm a big kind of fan of American university because that's what changed my life but it's not for everyone. So have a British university backup or have a British university as your first choice. Just do anything which kind of helps you stay in the game, helps you maintain the happiness of actually playing and being part of the tennis environment. Cause it's not, it's not an easy environment to be part of when you're a junior. Yeah. And then, and if you end up at 22 and you graduate university and you're ready to go pro, great or if you're 20 and like Paul Jubb you've won nationals and you know you're right it's the right time then you can always leave and go back and yep. so that, it's just about options and with options you take away the anxiety because you know that if one oh actually I'm not quite good enough yet for the pro tour but I've got this amazing option here that I can go to that yep. that's kind of the main thing of it all Brilliant. No, it's, it's, it's amazing. And it's amazing what you're doing. My, my last couple of questions. How do you find the right fit for players? Um, it's been nice now. I remember when I first started in 2005, where I'd have a, I only would help like two or three players and like talking to them and trying to figure out, oh, who's the nice coach? What's the best schedule? Yeah. Like, where can you play on the team? So now we're doing it every day for 15 years. I know now where all the good coaches are. I know that if you're in a mid-major and winning a conference and you get a conference title to go to NCAAs, that's far better sometimes than being on a, a team which you think is ranked and worth yeah. um, So I spend a lot of time during that part of the process of talking to my players and making sure they're aware of exactly what they want. And when they hear from coaches, allowing them initially to talk to the coach without any information from me. So their initial feeling is just from their gut and how they felt when talking to the coach. And then I give them the facts of the program. Like this coach is very developmental, does like to shout and scream at players though. So that's something you've got to be aware of. Yeah. 
you'll play number three on the team, but it's a balanced schedule. So you'll win matches, but also be challenged by ranked players. So I give them all the information where we, we work together with what's best and we start removing the ones which aren't. Yeah. Sometimes it can be a process which might last a week. Like with Toby Samuel, it was pretty quick because he was one of the best or like me and how it was for me with being a late developer, it might take eight months where we're in that stage of the process and yeah. working with one another quite frequently. Very good. And, and what's, what's next for college tennis? And what's next for Tennis Smart? Oh gosh, well I just hope we can, we literally, you all just need to pray that football goes ahead basically. So that's what we're kind of all hoping can happen. Because um, if like, if it didn't LSU, if they didn't have football, there's 58 million lost. So I'm dealing with stuff like that right now where I'm just hoping that we can get the fall started. Now, for the players going out this August, it's going to be a very different year to what they're normally going to be used yeah. to with the amount of matches and everything. And so I just hope we can kind of get through this period, get everyone back on campus in August, somehow manage the budgets for a year, and then we can be back firing on all cylinders for college you, tennis. You've just said, now you just threw that out there because this is your world. This is your, it's so normal in your world. To people listening, that's not normal. So, and you heard it right, LSU, which is the university I went to, the best university in America, but that's anyway, I'm not being biased, but we'll move on from that. Um, if they miss their, and, and she means American football, she's also very Americanized, called it football. <laughs> if they miss their American football season, which runs from September, well, for LSU it runs from until January, because the <laughs> national championship game, they will lose $58 million. And, and to give you guys an idea of where that comes from, it, it's a university like LSU has 110,000 stadium. People are paying $50 per ticket. Obviously, you're not paying the players. Um, then the merchandise is off the charts. You know, all of these different things. We are talking about a massive, massive, massive business here. Yes. And so that's the big question really like we we need football to go ahead because football pays for everything else so the non-revenue sports like soccer golf tennis they're the ones that don't bring in the money um so football is key and the worry i have and not to totally kind of end on a depressing note but when you have football matches like when people want to play LSU they'll play the teams which aren't highly ranked but the teams will come to them and LSU will pay them so those mid-majors are getting like a million dollars to play LSU which helps them survive okay. if the football season is shortened where you're just playing conference matches these mid-majors won't get that million dollar pay which yeah. will affect everything. So that's why football it has to go ahead yeah. in order for college athletics to really kind of be sustainable. Trump will make it happen. I mean, Trump, Trump's, Trump's, yeah. Trump's going to have to in stadiums within a couple of weeks, you know. Well, he, down south, they probably will, really. So it's, we're, I think everyone, the nice, not nice thing, but everyone knows that it's kind of critical. So they're all... All, play, all players are allowed back on campus June 1st. They're doing all the testing. The, 
everything they're all staying in the hotels away from people so they're doing everything it's like the premier league football they're doing yeah. everything they possibly can um and if in so once that gets the go ahead then things will start to kind of look a bit rosier with that but that's what i'm kind of waiting on because it then if it doesn't happen it then changes how i speak to my yeah. future clients with we're going to really like we look at both pathways anyway because you have to but uh, it's it's going to then maybe change the way we do things where some might stay in the uk for a little bit longer then they come out to me later and it's something we'll be having lots of discussions with 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 everyone and if they are in trouble just they'll just get a, a debt all sponsorship and just start injecting everybody you know that's fine no problem <laughs> So quick fire, I'm, I'm doing it a bit different with you. We do a quick fire round normally with, with people we normally have kind of set questions. Um, I do want it to be quick fire. You don't know what's coming, so I want to kind of get the kind of top of your head stuff. Um, you, have, you have 30 seconds to advise a player that's unsure whether US college is for them. Okay, 30 seconds is tough because I have to first look at their level, their academics and their finances. And so then, because for me, I don't want to send someone to America just for the hell of it. But let's say they meet all the requirements. Yeah. Then I literally talk to them about, look, being on a team, financially, it's, financially it makes more sense at a British university because it tends to be cheaper if you're a good tennis player. Yeah. And you just have a, you have a structured team around you where you have a coach, fitness trainer, academic advisors, a built-in team of friends immediately. So you have a better support system than you would staying at a UK university. But you, it's got to be the right fit. So, that, so the first thing has to come first with, is it right for them? And if not, I'll always guide them down to the British University route anyway. Very good. Did I did I actually answer that? I just totally politician rambled. No, it was good. It was a good answer. It was, 30, <laughs> it was 34 seconds, though. Oh, nice. Um, a coach who is a bit fuddy-duddy and stuck in the ways and, and doesn't want to send their players to college. What do you say to them? Uh, well, I guess first I'd find out privately from people as to why they don't want to send them to college in America. Like, is it because they want to maintain them in order to make money and always have them coming back for lessons? So yeah. I guess I'd first find out with really what are they kind of thinking with that? And then if it is the bit because they don't want to lose revenue, talk to them about the fact that we have a 50% dropout in 15-year-olds and actually by giving them an attainable goal like America, which is actually an amazing, like, amazing option to have, you're going to maintain more players until 18 who will then keep coming back to the club each summer and representing the club. So you're actually going to make more money at the end of the day. Oh, you're good. You're good. Yes. Um, I'm in. Um, <laughs> and to a parent who is maybe a bit anxious, doesn't know much about college, doesn't want to send their little... A little boy or girl off to off to the big scary America. Um, you have more support over here than you do there, so you you have to go to classes. People will check on you if you're not. You have two coaches who are literally on your back most days, and then you actually have me 
looking after players for the entire four years because something will always happen that you might need my feedback on and coaches don't tend to like to talk to parents because they'd rather speak to the player so that you can always go through me and I can find out if it really is an issue or if if not we can kind of figure it out but you'll always have a really good support system out here even if it is thousands of miles away. Very good and last one what's one rule you would change about tennis if you could? Oh gosh one rule about just anything about tennis? Anything one rule in tennis that you would change? God, I don't even know. What is what have other people said? That's tough. That's not even my in my wheelhouse. <coughs> we've had um, we've had more accountability to singles players. For, that came from that came from Jamie Murray um, for playing doubles. We've had have a have a two year two year rolling ranking. Um, we've had have have Portaloos put outside the toilets. Um, we've had takeaway um, injury timeouts. Um, yeah, we've had all we've had all sorts. Well, I guess for me, just being a doubles specialist, this not allowing singles players to use their singles rankings for the big events. I think for me, when I was on the tour and. I was a big sportsman with the WTA because at one point they were really trying to lim eliminate doubles and that's when the super tiebreak thing kind of came in. But just highlighting doubles as it's a completely separate kind of sport and actually more people from clubs play it and would probably prefer to watch it, but they don't know the players. So advertising the plays more and not allowing singles players to use their singles rankings to get into Grand Slam. Devil's Advocate, you're now a tournament director. Roger Federer and Serena Williams say, we want to get with doubles this week. Can't stop it, can you? No, because it's all about money. But if I had someone who was like Serena Williams, I could sit her on the ground and she could play chess and we'd fill a stadium. So if they can actually advertise these double specialists who are incredible then that would then make it a more difficult decision if it was people who aren't the two goats of the sport now, i'm going to get you back on in, in, a, in a couple of months if you don't mind sarah because i, I think i want to keep everyone updated with it's a, it's a moving situation in the world but i think it really is a moving situation with college tennis you know and i think it's such a big part of of our world, you know, from all levels, from basically players age 13, 14 upwards, you know, into tennis academies, tennis clubs. You know, we, we all need to be kept up to, updated with, with how things are moving, you know, any rule changes that they have, the effect it's going to have ultimately on people's lives. You know, one of, one of the things that I'm very proud of with everyone that I've spoken to, and, and it's been so nice reconnecting with so many people, there's so many of us still in tennis. You know, mm -hmm. this sport has given us so much, you know, and, and so many of us have gone through the US route to do that. It, it's not the only route, of course, it's not. Um, but it, the, this sport really is a, is a vehicle that, that gives so many opportunities. It's been, it's been fantastic talking to you. 
Um, I promised that I would only take 45 minutes away from your babies and it's been about an hour and 15. Well, I can talk another two hours if it means I have time without babies. <laughs> yeah, you get a little, get a little, bit of, little bit of respite. But thank you so much. Um, it's been brilliant and I'm sure that people are going to love listening to it. So thank you for your time, Sarah. No worries. Thanks, Dan. And there we have it, episode 24. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening and for your continued support on the podcast. Um, we do, if you're listening to this on the first day that it comes out, look out because we have a bonus podcast um, from a very, very special person, a very special tennis player, big superstar. And we have a podcast coming to you in the next couple of days. So, so look out for that one. Um, please subscribe to make sure that you don't miss that. Um, we're not after anything. That if you subscribe, it doesn't it doesn't cost you anything. There's no there's no email sign up. There's nothing. It's just we're doing this for the tennis community. We love doing it, and we love the support that you guys have given. And we just want to get it into the hands of of more and more people because there's some really really genuine learnings that are happening I know for myself and for John and the feedback from everyone that is listening to them is it's the same as well so so thank you um from on behalf of myself Dan Keenan and my co-host John McGann we are control the current we'll see you next time